0: The CMS Book Club. We're here today talking about the book *Teaming* by Amy Edmondson.
1: So welcome everybody. This is uh, Jenny Rudolph. Um, I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Medical Simulation, but today I'm going to be your book group facilitator, I'm trying to do my best to use my conversation, discussion, facilitation skills to interact with all of you to discuss the book. I wanted to just give an overview of the book teaming. And it comes out of this idea that for several hundred years, we had relatively stable teams working together and standardization like Ford Motor Company was the best way to have really high functioning teams. And what Amy Edmondson's principal thesis in this book is now is that teams change dynamically. And so we need to move from the noun team to the verb teaming because there are a variety of things that we need to do, say, and interact with each other to have our teams be really effective as they shift dynamically.
2: So welcome to the book club. Who else is here? Hi, I'm Deb Navedo. I'm the director of the Health Professions Education Program here at the MGH Institute of Health Professions.
3: Hi, I'm Mary Fay. I'm the associate director for the Institute for Medical Simulation at the Center for Medical Simulation.
4: And hello, I'm Jeff Cooper. I'm the founder and executive director emeritus of the Center for Medical Simulation.
5: Hi, I'm Janice Palaganes. I'm the director of educational innovation and development at the Center for Medical Simulation.
6: Hello, I'm Kate Morris. I'm the assistant director for educational leadership and international programs at the Center for Medical Simulation.
0: And my name is James Lipshaw, and I am the Education and Media Instructional Designer at the Center for Medical Simulation. Welcome.
1: Hey, everybody. So I wanted to just start uh, with the idea that there may have been things that kind of captured your attention that were confusing or particularly interesting to you in the book. And I'd like to just get a quick read from everybody about something you'd like to talk more about or a reaction to the
2: book. I can jump in. Uh, I was really struck by the idea that even though I was expecting to be reading about teaming, this was all about innovation and keeping projects moving forward. And that was really something that I said, Ooh, I wasn't expecting that from this book, but I I was really delighted about that. Mm,
5: Yeah. Other reactions. I, uh, what I, what I pleasantly enjoyed was it seems to give vernacular to concepts that we discuss almost daily um, at the Center for Medical Simulation, and, and so it was nice to see it in writing in kind of like a formal sense, and also with uh, new language that could kind of put us all on the same page.
1: Yeah, it seemed really uh, empowering to see ways of putting things into words that we do talk about and try to do a lot of.
6: I think for me, because, two things. One, I had a conversation with a colleague yesterday about psychological safety for learners, and then we started shifting and talking about psychological safety for faculty when they go back to their home place um, after having a transformative experience. And if they don't have psychological safety, then how are they going to be able to initiate change in terms of debriefing style and how students are are being educated in STEM? So this dovetailed very nicely. This was a reread for me um, in that idea that it, we think about it a lot from a learner perspective, but I'm thinking more broadly now about it from a faculty perspective. And then how does it link in uh, with the affiliate work and thinking about making change in organizations? That was something that the first time I read it, I read with the lens of as a debriefer. And this time, a lot more things were coming up for me around organizational change.
1: Right. And, and uh, when you refer to affiliate work, I think you're talking about your uh, kind of long term engagement and consulting with organizations trying to do organizational development and institutional change.
6: Yes. Lovely unpacking. So one thing
3: that that really struck me in this book was that she gave me a different way to think about the words diversity and inclusiveness, which we hear a lot um, today. But I often think about diversity, thinking about it in those ways that we're objectively, observably different from each other: our gender, our race, our you know ethnic background. But it's really about diversity of thought and diversity of perspectives and the richness that that brings to teams. And so that was really one of the the big takeaways for me was thinking about diversity and inclusiveness in, in different ways and the value that all those diverse perspectives bring to solving the problems in organizations.
1: That's really intriguing to think about all the ways that we might dismiss or be blind to differences uh, among us that you hadn't, that one hadn't thought of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jeff, any, any reactions?
4: Well, be a little contrarian if you don't mind in that, yeah, I found the material interesting. It's certainly about things that I've been thinking about for years and things we do at CMS. And, and it was great to see those concepts put together. Uh, I was, you know, I believe in all this stuff. It's, it's right on target for the kind of world I'd like to see and the kind of organizations I'd like to work in. And the things that I found more disappointing was that uh, even though there were, there were a lot of notes, they're really um, there's really well referenced, yet um, I'd say some of the things, and I can't really be so specific, were kind of stretches. I didn't see a lot of um, the contrast. Like when a book is trying to sell a point, I want to see the book have opposing arguments That at places where this doesn't work or where we don't have proof. And it had a little bit of the flavor to me of... Um, uh, it's not pop psychology because it really is well documented in that sense. But there wasn't contrarian view, and in my experience, there's a lot more of the opposite of this. And in my own personal experience of trying to create organizations like this, even though I feel really good, or though maybe I'm fooling myself about the way CMS is, uh, in other lives, it's really hard to do this. And what I was reading this book for was to find out. Not the natural organizations, but how do you make an organization like this? And this is more like, well, this is what you should do. This is what you have to do. This is the way that the leader needs to be. And as if it magically happens in some organizations rather than if this is what you aspire to as an organization, here's a path to get there. And so maybe it didn't meet my expectations and I shouldn't have had those because it didn't say it was going to do that. But that's the way I felt. So I, 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 I feel. Um... Still looking for answers for that. I know there's no magic, but I was looking for some new insight in how to create this kind of, um, I won't call it unique or, or, or um, ideal organization, but even moving toward uh, these general ideals.
1: Yeah, so I think what's um, important about what you're saying is that the group, the book in certain ways, is more normative or more prescriptive than descriptive about. Uh, or organization's (coughs) journeys, or to use the book's own language, how do we fail faster to learn better? Uh, Maybe there wasn't quite enough of that. Um, So maybe we could circle back to that later and use that as a way to illuminate um, some of the factors that seem to play into teaming, but maybe some of the things we're missing as well. Let me put out a, a possible roadmap for our conversation and get some uh, reactions or guidance from the group on what sounds promising or not promising to you. So, one thing that I thought might be good is to just make sure that we all have sort of a common lexicon or common set of con- concepts. And to do that, um, you know, I ask that some of you be able to kind of summarize the main points of a couple of the foundational chapters. And then uh, others of us can maybe fill in. Uh, and then what I was thinking is that once we have those kind of main constructs out there, we could dig into some of the things that you all brought up, because I think they're all really interesting. Uh, Deb's concepts around innovation, uh, Janice's uh, concepts around, you know, if we have a vernacular that we share, how much that work? Um, Kate thinking about psychological safety for organizational change and Mary's concepts uh, around diversity and inclusiveness. And then, you know, Jeff's kind of, uh, you know, do we have a roadmap? How do you fail? How do you restart? That sort of thing. So um, what I'd like to do is just, uh, you know, get some little snippets out here about what the heck are we actually talking about? What is uh, Amy Edmondson's the kind of concept? conceptual model in terms of what is teaming. And um, I thought to do that, we could talk about the power of framing, making it safe to team, uh, failing better to succeed faster, and then teaming across boundaries. I think those are kind of the main pillars there. And Does anybody want to kind of share some thoughts about what they took away in terms of framing? I know this is something we all talk about a lot, and I'm happy to uh, chime in as well on this.
5: I thought it was interesting, um you know, using the word framing when we use it for frames and and I think the way we use it in our course for those people that are listening to this podcast, um I believe it's previewing um and kind of getting everybody on the same page in within the conversation, and so i I feel like we need to clarify that for some of our um, graduates that are listening.
1: Yeah, and I actually um, think that's one of the meanings uh, in the book. And so uh, I just wanted to highlight what Amy's uh, main point here, I think, is, is that we tend to easily assume that what we believe is the truth. And she unpacks a number of ways that frames can kind of help us broaden and recognize that there are multiple perspectives and multiple truths. And one of the concepts that I thought was very powerful and new to me in the framing chapter was um, Ross's concept of naive realism, which is the idea that really, if a person is a rational person and reasonably well-informed, of course, they will see the world the way I do. And so I think this connects to Mary Faye's point about inclusiveness and diversity of thought processes. So part of what she talks about there, why framing is such a key part of of learning organizations, I think, and teaming and potentially innovation is that we've got to recognize that we each have different ways of seeing things and that to bring that diversity of perspective in is one of the ways we can innovate and one of the ways we can disconfirm our current thinking. You know, we've talked a little bit about framing and what that the role of that in in teaming and, and innovating. Um, love to switch gears and talk a little bit about making it safe to learn um, or making it safe to team, I should say. So,, uh, Kate, what's your take on that?
6: So, I'm thinking the things that really resonated for me out of this chapter was the juxtaposition of what it what is psychological safety and what's not psychological safety, that it's not necessarily. Being in a cozy organization where everybody is really good friends and there's no pressure or um, problems, that really it's about a climate where it's good to have dissenting points of view and that the dissenting points of view are expected and welcomed. And I think that's an important, you know, how she portrayed that. And oftentimes we have that conversation that comes up because people sort of think, oh, isn't that nice, you know, that it's safe. And um, it's not about being nice. It's about encouraging different points of view uh, and welcoming dissent and, and being able to tolerate that dissent. And I loved how she talked about the idea that there has to be a greater belief in giving people the benefit of the doubt. And if you aren't able to do that, there's very little chance that psychological safety will exist. In the organization, the other things that sort of leapt out at me were about the leaders and uh, a couple of things in the narration of the example of the NASA accident and uh, how how a leader frames or how a leader speaks first often squelches dissenting views, depending on the degree the degree of psychological safety in the team and that when you want to create psychological safety in a team or an organization that you just can't mandate it and say we're going to be a psychologically safe team we're going to be a psychologically safe organization that it's really about modeling and the leaders thinking and frames and behaviors and then every day every interaction that if that doesn't support it it's not going to happen the transition is not going to happen and she gave a couple of examples where People, um, you know, sort of that difference between our espoused belief and and the reality of creating psychological safety—that it's it's challenging, but it, and it requires the leader having those behaviors, having those frames of diversity and inclusiveness of thought. Um, so those were the major things that that um, sort of attracted me in that chapter. I'm curious if anybody else have any other things that I didn't mention that uh, were important to them.
3: Well, you know, Kate, just to sort of build on um, what you've said, and I think this goes back to what we were just talking about with um, with framing, is that so much of this is not an organizational directive. It's an internal shift in how we see the team and how we approach the team and, and some of the important um, some of the important internal shifts that we would need to make if to be a good team member or to be a good team leader are truly believing that my perspective is just my perspective. It's not the perspective that there are multiple truths that are all equally valid, I think is a huge internal shift for people to make, but a really important one, because when you hold that frame, you're willing to tolerate dissent and you're willing to entertain alternative points of view and that all of that and And many other things create that safe environment. But so much of it is an internal shift, and just it cannot be mandated by an external force. It has to be something that you believe internally.
1: One thing that struck me in um, related to Mary's concept about an internal shift that I kept thinking about in the various NASA related stories of you know people being aware of tiles falling off but mm-hmm. not being able to speak up the hierarchy to get that heard was the power aspect and contrastingly, the anxiety aspect of speaking with certainty. And so in the story of one of the NASA non-speaking up incidents, they relate how a powerful woman in the NASA hierarchy um, just said things really definitively. And I think about myself as a leader Sometimes when I'm most definitive is often when I'm most anxious. And I think part of how we as leaders of all the different things we're doing and people who want to cultivate a feeling that others are going to get the benefit of the doubt is we have to kind of part of the internal shift is continually that one from the amygdala and reptilian brain to the prefrontal cortex and binding your own anxiety some other way. So that you can still be flexible. And the book is not that overtly psychological, but I I kept thinking about that when I was reading that chapter. So I want to just move on and and, uh, spend a few minutes just fleshing out the concept of failing better to succeed faster. And I found this one of the most paradoxical and new areas of the book for me. And being part of our organization as we try to innovate in a variety of ways, I thought it was uh, very interesting and counterintuitive in a lot of ways. I, I think the, the most radical and simple idea of this chapter is we should, we, that is people who want to learn well, should be rapidly prototyping with the idea of messing up and doing extreme conditions tests for trying to find out the ways that we're wrong as quickly as possible. I think this was really a radical shift for me because uh, I think I'm naturally conservative with resources. I don't want to waste people's time. I don't want to waste my time. I want to be efficient. And what I realized is when you are trying to learn and uh, when you're trying to learn as an organization and innovate, if you don't do micro tests and they fail, you're basically not working at the edge of your expertise and you're not going to be learning. So I found that very freeing. Does anybody want to react to that aspect of it?
2: Uh, I had a thought about that, too, because as I was reading that section, it it was very apropos to higher education, which is rather risk adverse as well, in that um, uh, oftentimes when we want to start new courses, uh, we let the faculty start as an independent study, do it with small groups. We don't Um, Just start out by designing a huge course and then say, here, we'll admit um, register 50 people into it. Then it'll be a required element of the program. We usually start out small. But I really appreciated the, the section that was talking about keeping failures to within a manageable scale, meaning that you have to innovate, but innovate within a small enough space so that when it does fail, it does not end up costing you time or resources or personnel in a way that'll be detrimental to the system. Love that.
1: The other area that I thought was really interesting in failure, thinking about failure was, um, and I'm checking the book here, is the kind of three types of failures. So one was preventable failures, and those are the kinds where you're doing kind of a standard operating procedure. And your behavior, skill, or support doesn't work correctly and as expected, and there's a glitch. And I think that's kind of what most of us think of failure as, and therefore we try to avoid it. And so I think this is part of uh, linking the concept of framing to the concept of failure, which is like, we need to be a little more granular in understanding failure so we can appreciate where it's useful. The second was complex failures, where you have either something that's tightly coupled or complex or both. And so things interact in unexpected ways and you know, stuff happens. And so that is another kind of failure that I think most of us try to avoid. And then the third kind of failure, and this was uh, sort of where the aha was for me, is what she calls intelligent failure. And that is the unsuccessful trials that occur as part of thoughtful experiments and provide valuable new information or data. And so I thought that was particularly relevant for us when we're creating new curriculum or new instructional designs and whatnot. And we do micro cycle prototyping so that we can see like, how does that land on people? What's the impact? How hard was that to produce? Was it a total drag? I thought that was just, it was revolutionary for me in kind of rethinking my role as a kind of helper and director of, you know, high level things that might be happening in an organization but for each of us as we innovate thoughts about that
0: so i had i had one uh, one thought which sort of related to what deb was saying a moment ago um Great. and it's it's not necessarily related to business it's just more of a something that was imparted to me that i thought was really interesting which was when i was uh when i was younger i attempted to take up competitive playing of the game go if you're familiar with go it's a very very old maybe the oldest uh, board game wherein you place Black and white tiles on a grid, and attempt to take the other person's tiles and convert them to your tiles. And I was playing with a couple of of friends of mine who are fairly highly ranked Go players. And so what what they told me was basically, you want to lose your first thousand games very quickly. And the reason for that is you're basically as as a a learner, the game is so complicated that you're you're not going to win for a thousand games so don't don't expend all your energy and don't expend all your thought trying to strain through beating something that you're not going to beat just take the losses quickly and see how you're losing and see how people are beating you and then just do that and it, and it works particularly well you know in a in a zero-sum game like that where one person has to lose and one person has to win you know even if you're losing you're watching winning happen and you're observing winning so you can see what winning looks like and then do that.
5: Uh, You know, the other thing I liked about this chapter was I feel like you know we always talk about the basic assumption at the Center for Medical Stimulation for the individual. And then we ask our learners, so the basic assumption is that um, all participants at CMS is capable, cares about doing their best and wants to improve. And, you know, we ask our learners to hold that same basic assumption for us. And I thought this chapter was almost like an organizational basic assumption that creates, you know, can put everybody at a stance of curiosity and be more forgiving of of things and just create that openness in, in the culture. I felt like it was a little slap upside
1: my head in a good way, in, in ways that I wasn't really understanding what you just said, Janice, deeply enough. So I think it is really good in, it, kind of at the organizational level. So what I'd like to do is kind of move to a more open conversation about some of the really interesting issues that people uh, raised here. I think one of the kind of cross-fertilizing issues that I saw but between things that you raised are, uh, Mary Faye, you raised the issue of how it kind of forced you to see diversity and inclusiveness differently. And I'd like to just get your take on that a little bit. And then I think that might open up a pathway for us to talk a bit about uh, Jeff Cooper's concern that do we really know how to apply this in organizations that are really not open to this? And for those of us who are trying to work on culture change, how might we do that? And and I do think there's some seed here within the diversity and inclusiveness bit. And so I think Mm -hmm. I'd like to start there. So Mary, can you... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you were thinking about all
3: that. You know, I think I'll I'll talk about that by um, giving an example that it, it really brought back to me, which was when I was the director of a simulation lab and we decided that we would pursue accreditations by the Society for Simulation and Healthcare. And so I initially started out seeing that as sort of my responsibility as the director and mainly driven by the faculty. But as the process unfolded over the course of several years, it became apparent to me how important it was to have people like the administrative assistant force us to think about things like, what will this book look like? How will the pages be set up so that it's visually easy for people to read the pages, access the information. I had to rely a lot on my simulation technology person to help me think about how we might present different ideas or what equipment was important to the reviewers. I had to interface with the folks in our evaluation department at the university to help me think about what data would be needed, excuse me, and how we could most effectively present that data. And then when it came to the site visit, I had to work with the facilities people to think about, you know, facilities issues I might not have thought about, like lighting and security and how people move around through the the different rooms in the simulation lab. And so as I was reading her ideas about diversity and inclusiveness, I was really thinking about the so many varied perspectives that at the beginning of that journey, I didn't see as being valuable, but how at different times different people became the most important person in that meeting. Like I would not necessarily have thought that high level decisions would have come from an administrative assistant. But when we got to that part of the process, she became the de facto leader of several sessions because she had the knowledge that I didn't have about how a lot of those administrative issues worked. So that was really what it made me reflect on was that long journey and how at different times, different people in the group became sort of the leader or the most important voice in the room. So connecting
1: that to learning in teams or teaming, how do we form and reform teams? Mm
3: -hmm. You know, I
1: think about a lot of the clinical departments that I float around in, and I think there's often a presumption that the physician's point of view is extremely important and everybody else is there, but yeah, yeah. And I think that I can certainly fall into that because I tend to be biased by my faculty point of view. And in the book, Amy Edmondson tells the story of successfully digging out the miners who mm-hmm. were you know, buried 2,000 feet below ground and how incredibly important the teaming across different
5: mm-hmm. mindsets
1: and innovative ideas and this true interdependence was really central to actually getting people out alive. And sounds like there's something about the accreditation process or requiring these different perspectives that was different from your daily work. Mm -hmm. And what was that? There's a way there's something that got triggered there that doesn't Mm -hmm. normally get triggered Mm -hmm. for us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mary, you might have thoughts on that. Other people, you might have been through something similar. What's that teaming?
6: I'm thinking it's the complexity of the situation when the complexity of the situation is greater and there are a lot of moving parts and it's impo- in many ways it's impossible for one person to appreciate all those moving parts simultaneously and the influence it has on the situation and that without getting others perspectives it's increasingly difficult to be successful you know i'm thinking From a healthcare perspective, it might be in a complex operating room uh, case. And that, you know, the case does not, and good surgeons know this, the case does not run without everyone in there. If it's a cardiac surgery case, the perfusionist has a different perspective than the, uh, you know, the second assist, than the anesthetist, than the scrub, you know, without, but without all those perspectives. That's what makes it a success. And the openness, as Mary was saying, the inclusiveness and the openness, because if the scrub nurse knows that there is a missing scrub uh, or a missing uh, sponge and that's in the patient, she is the most important person in the room. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just like for Mary, the most important person in the room changed depending on how the project was being looked at, what Mm -hmm. phase it was at.
5: So, Jenny, I'm really appreciating these stories because I I think it was nice to read two concepts that um, we talk about and mention in our course and we talk about pretty frequently within our group um, which is the boundary spanning which are um, deliberate attempts to reach across boundaries um, that exist within and between groups of all kinds and I think what I love the most about uh, Mary's example and Kate's example is it brings home for me the importance of the boundary object, which is the second concept that she mentions. Um, and to me, it has just been so key, just a key concept in interprofessional education in general, um, which are objects that are recognizable to all the groups, um, but they're used for and have different meanings by the group. So, for example, in Mary's case, the actual application was the boundary object and brought together the fact that everyone has a different piece of the puzzle, has a different perspective, and allowed the respect and acknowledgement of the groups, the different groups, that there, that there are different perspectives and different pieces of knowledge. And that's just, I think, so key to teaming. That's, that's so powerful, uh, the
1: concept. Deb, it looked like you had a thought earlier. Do you want to chime in here?
5: And
2: I've got like three or four thoughts backed up here. <laughs> I think this whole notion of teaming and boundaries is is really huge. And I like the direct tie into interprofessional education, specifically that I think that there are times when leadership is important, but followership is important too. And in service of, and it all kind of ties back into my initial impressions about innovation and how that connects to innovation. The group that has assembled needs to all be ready to uh, jump in as a follower and follow the ideas of um, the person that has the particular concept that's going to be implemented. And everybody needs to be able to say, okay, now it's time to follow Susie's idea in order to, and in service of, the organization growing and to try something different knowing that failure is a possibility but it's okay and if it does then we'll regroup again and then the whole idea about how uh, a team grows I'm taken back to um, Tuckman and Steele's work that I usually go to well separate works but um, organizational team how teams uh, develop so specifically the forming storming norming and then performing piece the, what I was struck with this across boundaries and uh, working together was the idea that when a team forms and fails we need to fail early that means we may not even get to the beginning part of performing so I think the big picture is that my takeaway from from this book was that I always thought of a group formation as a linear process forming storming norming and performing whereas uh, really in order to to be innovative, which was my takeaway from this book. Um, one has to be able to maybe perform a little bit, but recognize early that the, a failure is useful. Either use the data from it or um, recognize that it's not useful. Cut your losses with the resources, but be willing to dive back into the forming, storming, and norming phases. And that, that, I, that was a novel concept for me. So we're talking a little bit about
1: chapter six Teaming across boundaries and Janice, yet another concept in mind.
5: Yeah, so one concept that I loved that we don't use in our vocabulary at CMS is cross-functional teams, which I like, and I I think that's what we've really been working on, Jenny, in terms of all of the different kind of arms of um, CMS and bringing us all together. And the concept is is that you bring together experts of Various kinds who can combine knowledge um, gleaned from their distinct training to produce results um, that can't otherwise be achieved by just one single profession or discipline. And I think this speaks to what Mary, both Mary and Kate were saying in their examples. Um, you know, how do you bring highly specialized skills? into one cohesive group. And I I love, she, she gives this, you know, tip of everybody for leadership and for organizations to establish a collective identity in that sense. And, um, and, you know, use the boundary objects to span. So this connects to me,
1: what, what you've been saying, uh, Janice, what Deb brought up circle back to me in a way and connect to the idea that uh, Mary brought up a little while ago talking about diversity and inclusiveness, which is this internal shift, because to appreciate the kind of complexity that Kate was talking about, to appreciate the kind of cross-functional connections and collaboration that you're talking about, to recognize that somebody's perspective on the other side of the boundary object is actually valid, I think that requires a shift and a willingness to be interdependent, perhaps even a kind of celebration of like, wow, this is so cool. I can rely on this other person to do their part in a way that I never would and I would never understand. I think that requires a sort of softening of a typical kind of. MD, MBA, RN, move ahead, get it done. I know how to do it. Training that we all have and a kind of mutuality that's a little so bit different. So it reminded
5: me of, and I love that, you know, Kate kind of processing on what this moment is. Because uh, I think it ties back to the the book that we read for this book club, Theory U, with Otto Sharmer. and how he says that it's interesting that you say softening because. You know, before the softening, there's almost this, the group gets some sort of pressure or some sort of moment that makes everybody kind of pause and then kind of turn or internalize and soften in that way to realize we all have to work together. It's like, you know, and and Amy Emmonson talks about establishing a super goal. And it's almost like people are kind of blinded by their egos. And then like Kate said, there's this moment that happens whether it's the patient crashing or you know, you only have a certain amount of timeframe to get the application in for your accreditation that all of a sudden like everybody's pressured and feeling the sense of stress. And it's that moment that makes everybody realize, oh, we have to work together and we all have different perspectives and we can't do it alone. So I'd like to bridge
1: And I think this kind of warm and fuzzy feeling we all have about if we can truly make an internal shift that appreciates different perspectives and we recognize the interdependence and there may be some contextual factors of complexity that make us appreciate different team members' values. I'd like to turn us now to the difficult moments when we're either working with an organization or ourselves are in a moment in our own organization where it's really hard to. Apply these principles. and Jeff, you know, I wonder how these things that we've been discussing right now link into what you brought up about feeling like, hey, when doesn't this work? What does get in the way? how what's the roadmap to to change a really recalcitrant group or organization or people who are really finding it hard to appreciate that interdependence.
4: So there are lots of books written about change management. And all changing all sorts of things, and I searched for that for years. Is what are the various formulas, the ways to go about doing that to shift the culture, and and I just find that an incredible struggle. I think again with this book, it reminds me a little bit of high reliability organizations that work by came out of uh, University of uh, uh, UC Berkeley and then also um, yeah in Michigan and. They're both descriptions of what HROs look like. They've studied that and they've identified what are the characteristics of what they look like. And then there have been various uh, methodologies about how you get there that I've been involved in. And I just find them all very unsatisfying in terms of a formula that works, a process by which you really can change culture rather than it just evolving on its own. And I, I don't think that's true. I think there are... Ways to do it, and I'm still searching for them. I didn't find them in the book, but you, know, you first have to identify what is the thing that you want to be, and so it should be enough. And maybe this book is enough in that it's defining for me what is a way to be that I like. Frankly, I don't think that our, our world, and particularly our country, is in that moment right now. If you don't mind my being political, we're really completely the opposite of that. So I find that disturbing, and and this book is something I wish we could apply not just to Simulation into our hospitals and our healthcare system, but to our daily lives. And and I'm really flummoxed about what are specific ways uh, to do that. I mean, I have some general ideas. I think the thing that you were talking about before, Jenny, that you, when you you opened this up, is uh, fail early. Maybe that's the magic, is with every organization, if you want to shift the culture to try some things out and fail early and see what are the things that work for this culture. Uh, I mean, Because in a way, the book, it, it really depends on a great leader, a leader that has these kinds of ideas and is willing to be vulnerable, willing to be open, talk about his or her mistakes, to model that behavior. But in my experience, it's not enough to model that behavior. Because I've tried to do that and, 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 and even tried to coach people who were uh, reporting to me. And I just was stymied at trying to change some of their behaviors to act in this ways that this book is talking about. So I've had my personal struggle. I've failed and I've succeeded. And I still don't know what's the magic, what's the right way. And it may be try again, try again. And when you fail, if it's not working, cut your losses. And that may be an answer that I, I'm always very reluctant, by the way, to go with.
5: So I'm going to tie this into, and Jenny, thanks so much for sending the New York Times article, which I found really interesting. And I have, it was a second read for me on uh, Project Aristotle with Google and how they were trying to understand the success of a good functioning team or highly successful teams. And I thought it was so interesting. I think it speaks to what you're saying, Jeff, that I think is missing in this book is that there is no real pattern. Um, it, there were some commonalities, but the commonalities were were very vague. Like there's some sort of unspoken social norms that everyone knows, um, and that there's different expertise within the group. So this concept of cross-functional teams. And and then I thought the other thing that they found to be a commonality, what that was interesting was that people on on these highly functional teams had their own network and brought that network to the team. And it was a different network from everyone else. And so, you know, whether or not these things that are listed in the book really work, I mean, I wonder if Project Aristotle studied specifically some of these things, but I just thought it was interesting. They could not find a pattern like this, like having good modeling. They they were showing that it was all over the place. So I thought one of the consistent
1: findings that I took from the, you know, both of them secondhand write-ups, I couldn't find an original, I couldn't find the original Google study, but was that psychological safety was kind of a cross-cutting thing and making all the teams successful. Yes. Okay, folks. So um, I'd like to move toward wrapping up some um, main ideas that we thought were really interesting or exciting or something that is still kind of stuck um, and you're sort of have
2: some lingering questions about. Deb, what's on your mind? So I'm struck with the teaming across boundaries and uh, failing early, meaning that it, the value in teaming is a good debate, that varying perspectives are necessary. And that that's what I think she's talking about when she says across boundaries. And without a good debate and sharing of perspectives and openness to other perspectives, There's really no hope for innovation. That's what I'm taking away.
3: Somebody else? I think that, you know, all the different topics that we have talked about, the commonality across them all is that we have to make the internal shift in how we view the other people on our team, whether we're the leader of the team or a follower on a team, that there has to be this internal shift of, like Deb just said, valuing other perspectives, but also when we think about failing early, about not being fearful of making mistakes and also the value of being open to feedback. And that's a big internal shift for a lot of us because lots of times our professional identity is at stake when we're operating in our organizations and the idea of taking risks and failing and and getting feedback from people can be a scary thing. And so I think that's what I really take away from all this is the internal shifts that have to happen and how we see our place on the team. Great. Other thoughts?
4: Yeah, jumping in. One of the things actually I'm taking away more from this conversation uh, than the book, I mean, it was in the book, is that if you really want to change organizations to to use teaming, the verb teaming, then you probably have to try it in order to innovate, try different things while you're trying to do it, and fail early and expect to fail in trying to do it. And I hadn't really thought about that. I was thinking if I have to do it, I have to have the answer for what the process is, but the process ought to be one of trial and error. So it's a meta Mm -hmm. from this book. Right,
1: that's great. So the very process of trying to learn to team could be one where you pick some content, but you're accepting the idea that you want to fail early, learn from those failures, and adjust the process of learning to team.
5: I'm taking away that, you know, there are certain things that seem important to creating teaming um, and highly functional teams, which as we've discussed, psychological safety group norms, cross functionality. So combining highly specialized skills into one cohesive group, and then also failing early. I'd love to, and, I, and I'm gonna be more conscious of it, to personally study what heated moment, what boundary objects you know, or what occurs that helped motivate that internal shift that softens us and the organization, like unfreezes us to bring us together, um, to help us establish a collective identity. Okay, your thoughts?
6: So I'm going to go back to failure and I'm going to share a very brief story to illustrate. As we're talking about this, I was, um, Reminded of a conversation that I had when I was hired as a new clinical nurse specialist and clinical nurse specialists are in a very brief description change agents in an institution. And I remember the chief nurse executive saying to me, I think on my second day when I was meeting with him, that if I don't hear that you're out there failing, you are not doing your job. And it was incredibly freeing, and it was an institution that went on to do a major culture change over um, a number of years. And I think I've become more failure averse since that time, and I think that that uh, you know rereading this book and thinking about that and thinking about how important it is to, to do that, to fail in an environment that is psychologically safe is critically important to moving the organization forward. Uh, because otherwise, you're never, you know, perfect is the is the enemy of of change. I think because if you're waiting and waiting and waiting until things get perfect, you it will be very hard to try things on. So that sort of struck me as I was listening to the conversation about um, failure and the connection to the book.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that I was really interested from the in from this conversation when Mary brought up the piece on diversity and inclusiveness, in particular, this idea that. People have to get around to the idea that other people bring other points of view and have other points of view different from their own. Um, and that's like a difficult step for a lot of people in leadership positions to make to, to say that someone else is going to have that naive realism idea. Coming from having worked in Silicon Valley um, as a person with a disability who passes for able bodied, it's very it's very interesting to me because the culture out there and the culture even in some of the startups where I worked is very much a if you're not willing to. Not take a salary and take these risks and go start this company and go live in a closet while you're working on this thing and do, you know, if you're not willing to just like put everything else on hold in order to go do your innovation thing, go do your tech thing, then the reason you're not doing that is because you're afraid, you know, and that's the only possible reason there could be is because you're not adventurous enough. You're not innovative enough. You're not brave enough. And for me, it's like, yeah, if I don't have health insurance, I go broken, then I die. So <laughs> I can't really do that with you. So that, that, that was always, you know, interesting to me. And again, cause I, I pass for a lot of things. So I'm, I'm privy to, some of those conversations from people who you can imagine as not being what you would think of as diverse i think the failure that a lot of sort of those those organizations encounter is just failure to get around to that idea that other people educated and intelligent and and you know whatever that other people would have different viewpoints and that's the reason that you see so much rejection of diversity or like the rejection of the idea that it's really important to bring people of different genders and people of different races and people of different orientations into the room because they they can't get over that idea both no one even if we did bring them in like what's the point of that it's like they're just going to think the same thing that i think anyway like they can't recognize that that's not true people from those different Places are going to have different ideas, you know, disabled people have different ideas about what a company should look like from people who are able bodied and 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 all across the board in that way. And so I think that that failure that we see in, you know, all the, the talk that comes out without much action about like we need to make Silicon Valley more diverse um, is because people don't they don't get on board with it because they think it's just a surface thing when in fact it's not like it's actually about getting diverse ideas, not necessarily about getting diverse bodies.
1: So um, that's such an interesting, important addition because we've been thinking about sort of cognitive diversity and there's abledness diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, socioeconomic diversity, and um, professional diversity, all kinds of perspectives that might be valued or might be missed. And um, maybe I'll sort of end with uh, one phrase from the book that I thought was uh, particularly helpful or one idea, which was, do we have an aspirational purpose or a defensive purpose? And what I liked about this is I think it, when we aspire to do something new or different or better, like even though it's Seems kind of dry, like an accreditation. Um, you know, Mary Fay's example of trying to pull the whole team together so that they could be accredited, or pulling together, you know, international um, contributors to get miners out of the mine shaft. All of a sudden, there's a motivation for that internal shift that we've been talking about to really care about that diversity, and uh, because of the complexity that um, Kate Morse mentioned. We have to hear those different things, versus the defensive purpose, which I think most of us maybe kind of bop along with in our life, which is I, I like my point of view, I'm going to keep my point of view, don't need to know from you. So shifting ourselves to that sort of aspirational purpose, you know, may be part of our teaming journey, as it were. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, in having our book group here. so in in the in the in the spirit of teaming, how did we do here? Let's do a little sort of plus delta. So what kind of things did we do well as a team trying to understand this book?
5: I, I thought we summarized well a lot of the concepts and, you know, put on an outfit for each of the concepts, which I thought was nice to a nice way to present it. I, I just want to bring up one point in the book that we didn't bring up that I think is so important. And I, I actually don't remember the term, but she does, she talks about how conflict is desirable to teaming and how there's healthy conflict and and tension. I don't remember what she calls that. Does anybody remember?
1: Well, I don't really think that's a very good idea to bring up right now because I think we're nearing the (laughs) end and and I think we should all just focus on on one thing. So anyway,
5: this this is my thought is I would have liked to go more into Jeff kind of back and forth. Yes. Having more just, like a little more tension. Yes. Everything we were saying, I think that would have been really cool. Well, listen, I was
1: trying my best to channel my inner um Tom Ashbrook because I think he's so good at finding the spicy disagreement. And um <laughs> so uh, on the delta, I, I totally agree with you, Janice. A little more disagreement, a little more spice, a little more tension would go a long way. And see, I even agree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> dispense, dispense, dispense. Uh, any other pluses or deltas for folks please
4: uh, well it'll run a little to... longer than i would like so i'll give you a minus because i'm heading for my car but okay, I just, I gotta get home, okay. So i'm gonna hang thanks everybody all
1: okay. right
5: bye Steph. thanks Steph. i just I, wanted oh, I to say... say
4: i got a lot from it because i got an idea and thinking that i didn't have before so it was worth it for me whether it was worth it for anybody else or not. So, thanks for that.
1: I just wanted to say I really loved everybody's initial reactions. Those were so awesomely cool and gave me a totally fresh take on the book. So, I just wanted to thank you all for those. I, I got so
2: much out of those.
0: Yeah, I, th- I thought um, this went really well from a technical uh, perspective too. Even with losing and having to reconnect two people, yeah, um, it just sounded much better than it did last time, um, and <laughs> it makes my job a lot easier. So thank you for that. Oh, also, oh, yeah. I totally forgot to mention this in the pre-brief, but thank you for not swearing. Uh, oh. <laughs> I I have to bleep that unless we want to get an explicit tag in the iTunes Uh-oh. store.
2: Thanks for including me. I truly appreciate it too. I, I recognize that this is a a, a CMS focused conceptual digging up. And I think by, by you, including me, you're doing yourself a huge service um, showing that you're welcoming diverse perspectives uh, and have a lot to, di- <laughs> for, to offer in terms of diversity. So thank you. I, I appreciate being a part of this group. Me too.
5: All right, everybody. Uh, um, no, thank you for leading it, Jenny. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Sure. Do you want, do you want to do a, like an outro? Would you like me to do an outro? Um, I can yeah. Do yeah. It, you I do, can an do an outro. Sure. Great. Um,
1: uh, 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 I don't know how to do one, so why don't you do it?
0: Sure.
1: And I'll learn for next time.
0: Give me a second. got to get okay. into the radio voice. Okay. So sultry. Next up on NPR, we have Terry Gross discussing a new experimental jazz album. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been the CMS Book Club for... Jenny Rudolph, Janice Palaganis, Deb Nevado, Jeff Cooper, Mary Fay, and Kate Morse. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we will, I am James Lipshaw, uh, and we will see you next time. Bye bye.